Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. Man, time moves fast, doesn't it? Seriously fast. I, I feel like a couple of days ago we were like, "Oh, huh, I think uh, I think in ninety days the uh, the Taliban will take over <laughs> Kabul." Jesus Christ. They were playing bumper cars <laughs> by like the next day, like after we finished recording. Well, a couple a couple of weeks ago, I don't remember when we said what, but a couple of weeks ago, I think we said like 90 days or so. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know what consensus we came to. That's what yeah. I figured around 90 days, four mm-hmm. weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think last time we spoke about Afghanistan, um, we, I think last episode... I don't really remember what I said. I think I said it, it, it might take a while for them to take the urban centers, mm-hmm. yeah. but they did very quickly. But, you know, someone reached out to me on Twitter today, and it made me feel good about myself because he's like, hey, I just listened to that episode on Vietnam, and you said that once the U.S. leaves Afghanistan, then the government will fall in three hours. And I was like, I said that? Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that's you know. funny. I mean, we'll, we'll, um, uh, that, that's interesting that you bring that up because uh, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about Vietnam today, but we'll, wait, we'll do that at the end. Okay. Um, but, I mean, here's the thing. The media is going crazy right now, and I think it's diluting the narrative that we should be taking from this very, very valuable lesson that we'll, we're all receiving about nation building and foreign policy and mm-hmm. statecraft and intervention. Just so many valuable lessons should be um, learned right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone is using this politically. So the Republic, the right wing is saying, ah, oh, Biden, such a disaster. Ah, oh, <laughs> you ruined everything. Mm-hmm. And then the Democrats are like, well, this is all Trump's fault. <laughs> you know. So Meanwhile, George Bush is sitting back like with a smile on his face and his hands up in there. It's, like, it's hey, kind of hilarious no. because really no one's blaming either George Bush for starting this and mm-hmm. um, Obama for extending it and, and making it even bigger. Or even so, going back before that, like fucking Ronald Reagan for you know, oh, his involvement in the history. That's on. even further back. <laughs> Let's not expect too much from our from our media. Um, of course, <laughs> we're not going to go all the way there. There might be some special, you know, on ABC that talked about it for two minutes. Yeah. But it will never, ever be, uh, you know, kind of gr- drilled into the minds of the American news watcher. But... All right, everyone knows it looked like a disaster. So people, um, you know, I mean, it holding... is a disaster. Let's be real; it is. Well, all right, but it's just the, to... disa- the 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 probably the least disastery disaster. <laughs> that... I want you to hear me out right now because mm-hmm. I think that 
this may have been the best case scenario, what we just watched. I disagree, but go ahead. I'll entertain this. What would you rather have? Would you rather have a peaceful, pretty much bloodless war? Yeah, there have been casualties and there have been murders, but usually those murders have been, um, you know, the Taliban murders have been more like specialty, um, you know, um, pilots have been killed and and stuff, military Mm -hmm. commanders. Those Mm -hmm. guys have been being assassinated and stuff like that. But other than that, it's just been going from village to village. Hey, you declare, um, are you a brother of Allah and... You know, do you agree not to fight us? Yes. Okay. We're fine. That's kind of been what's Give been going guns. on in the countryside. <laughs> and then that just extended to Kabul. And it was bloodless. Would you rather have a sacking of the city? Would you rather have a six-month sacking of Kabul and there be mass uh, civilian death? Would you rather be mortars and... um the Taliban running in and machine gunning people and killing just, you know, men, women, and children. And it's funny because that's how the media is reacting. They're reacting as if the Taliban is going in like ISIS did Western Iraq and started committing atrocities. And based off what I've seen, I mean, maybe there are some things going on, um, but based off what I've seen, they're kind of just saying, all right, guys, we're in charge here. Uh, we're just going to keep the status quo. Just go back to your business. We're bringing uh, law and order, law and order. That's, they keep on saying law, order, peace, law, order, peace. So the fact that there was a transition of power that wasn't a complete bloodbath, a blood, bloodbath, I think is a positive development in the story rather than be some brutal, brutal battle that goes on that just takes the lives of, 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 of uh, countless people. And it's not even like American soldiers or Americans are like stuck, you know, trapped in the embassy and trying to escape out of, of, the, of uh, the country. The Taliban is saying, you know, they're being kind of nice about it so far, you know, as nice as they, they can be. Um, I don't want to sound like a Taliban apologist because I, they, they are bastards and they do have no problem really killing civilians. But, you know, right now they seem to be they seem to be diplomatic about everything. They're saying the right things and they're behaving in the right ways where they're not trying to test, um, you know, the Americans to go back in and say, all right, we're just going to carpet bomb. We're going to leave, but we're just going to carpet bomb this place because they know that is a possibility. Mm-hmm. But um, now I think largely this is a good thing for at the very least the afghan people maybe not afghan women but for the people who immediately live in kabul it's better not to die in an explosion um so that's my initial take um what is your take hey look i mean i'm i i mostly agree with everything you're saying right as a matter of fact the majority of what you say i agree with i would definitely prefer a bloodless takeover even even by you know bastards like the taliban where I think it's not the best case scenario, and you know, to not not to spew a talking point from the right here, but you know, I think it was a mistake of us to telegraph the fact that we were leaving and the date upon which we were leaving, and then continuously broadcast those those things. I think what would have been a better situation would have been maybe to admit that we were leaving. And to internally have that date set, uh, and to proceed with those 
with those motions. But, you know, right now, uh, the U.S. and and allies and and people like that have no leverage to um, to impart upon the Taliban to to try and, you know, make a seamless transition of government. Right. So right now what we're seeing, you know, is just the it's the first of of many steps, um, you know, of a you know, basically what, what, what is a reunification of a country that's been at a civil war for fucking at least 20 years, more if we really look into the history. Right now, all we're seeing is that first step. And, you know, I, I will talk about Vietnam later, um, but there's a lot of echoes there uh, that need to be considered. And the fact that we, you know, the, the former occupying force have no leverage over it is troubling in that one respect. And, and, and it's the most troubling for the people of Afghanistan, as you say, just like the women, as an example. Um, and furthermore, there are, while we don't have American soldiers stuck in Afghanistan that can't leave, there are still thousands upon thousands of people who have legitimate reasons to fear for their lives uh, in a Taliban rule. When the United States is fully out when we when we are done with our operations, and I think, had we been more covert about our process of leaving, I think we would have been able to secure the airport um, much much better, uh, and I think we would have been able to get out more of the the Afghanistan you know uh, 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 the Afghani's who who supported us who helped us you know, in the last 20 years and, you know, people who would be considered dissidents help out with the, with, with what is going to be invariably a refugee crisis. Uh, this is definitely going to happen. Um, and that's going to cause regional instability. I know that the people around, um, uh, Afghanistan, namely Pakistan, uh, is going to have some trouble, uh, you know, with this new government for, if at the very least for the refugee problem, but more so for you know the instability that refugee pr- crises um, create. So, is this the best case scenario? No, in my opinion. Um, I think there, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, there could have been better, better organization and better operation uh, of this withdrawal. I definitely support the withdrawal. I definitely think it's it's about time. Um, I'm sure we'll probably talk about Biden's speech and, and the media's reaction about it, but I'll leave that for later. Um, you know, but it, there, there's, there's still so much more that has to happen after this is just step one. Step one is Taliban takes over Kabul, but there's still so much more that has to happen after that. And there's still so much more that can go devastatingly wrong. Well, I mean, we're talking about the boondocks. We're talking about a place that is basically Tatooine, Tatooine yeah. in Star Wars. Like, we're talking about a place so alien and foreign to anyone else in America that we have no idea how their customs are, how people really interact with each other. It's just a foreign, exotic place to Americans where we don't, we should not project our values on. Now, I think the, where I'll agree with you as far as like the withdrawal, I mean, I think the the easiest, the best thing they could have done was they should have stuck with the original plan, Trump's plan, to go out, to move out in May. 
because what they did is that they withdrew during fighting season. Mm -hmm. And withdrawing from fighting season, the Afghan army was completely demoralized, basically evaporated. It evaporated as soon as the Americans left. Mm -hmm. Like it literally evaporated. The army evaporated in a matter of hours from when the U.S. finally left. It was astonishing to see just how much of a ghost army they actually were. We all knew that this was a ghost army. This wasn't really a. This wasn't a real thing. Most of the soldiers were fake soldiers. Did you see? Funny. Did you see the uh, the the videos that have been circulating that went viral on um, how like the American soldiers like trying to teach a bunch of Afghani yeah. soldiers how to do jumping jacks? That shit was hilarious. But I mean, obviously, this is like one isolated incident. But I think it's kind of a meme. It's definitely a meme, but it's also like a a representation of this ghost army that you're talking about, right? This is like totally ill-equipped, totally unserious, you know, um, military. When I say ghost army, I mean they're physically not really in the army. They're just on the army. Well, yeah, they inflated their numbers. They inflated their numbers just to get more money and and weapons and shit like that. Yeah. Exactly. Like, we're talking about lying about how big the army is, when in reality, it's probably a third of the size that they're saying is. And it's funny, you know, one of Biden's big mistakes and something he, and I wish he was transparent on, I think he probably knows enough to know that, you know, everything that he said prior in July about the Afghan uh, army being able to, you know, at least stand up to the Taliban was not really speaking in terms of reality. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to sit here and, uh, you know, trash Biden on this because everyone else is trashing him, including the, the corporate press, which is kind of astonishing how um, hard the corporate press is going on, going after him on. But he's ending the war. He's under immense political pressure to change his tune right now. He's getting attacked from everyone, from from the right to the neoliberal left. He's getting attacked from all sides about staying there. The right is saying, oh, you are ruining American credibility. Blah, 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 blah. How are we ever supposed to negotiate or any other country supposed to take us ever serious again? This is embarrassing. A stain our national pride. Blah. And then you hear people on the, the left are like, ah, Afghan women. Oh, no, Afghan women. You can't. You can't. Biden's like, no, it's done. It's over. We're, do- we're, we're leaving. Like, this is, there's no point to do with this anymore. His mistake was misleading people in July, um, saying that this was going to be a fight. But then again, that could have just been in his briefings telling him that, um, you know, maybe he's well, yeah, he should not probably sure how get, much he, he should knew, probably but, sack that national security advisor. Well, someone his. needs to get fired over this. There needs yeah. to be a scapegoat. And just the optics. And it, I don't know. I get a little bit of a sense of. I'm not sure about this yet, and this is I'm purely speculating. I have no proof. I do have a little bit of a uh, babies on incubators vibe on this that there's some imagery that could be exaggerated. I'm not really sure about that, but I really get that kind of babies on incubators type vibe about some what? some just some of the stories that are coming out. I'm trying to over dramatize some things. Like I watching that video of the people. On the on the tarmac, hanging onto the planes. I was like, "Why the hell are you doing that? Why are you hanging onto these planes?" Yeah, but I mean, it, that happened. There's that that happened. That definitely video. happened. <laughs> but I'm just wondering. I'm just like, kind of. It's a stunning video because, like, what do they expect to happen? Like, hold, like a guy held on to that plane and he dropped a hundred feet, and I think he died. Yeah, he did. There was another one so, that got squished by the landing gear. And got stuck in the landing gear. And outside of the window, there's this video 
in the C-130 of like just his dead corpse flailing around in the wind because dude is dead. And, and, and this, this is why I'm saying, Henry, that I don't think that this is the best case scenario because there, there were people, at least through the evidence that we see, who were so fucking desperate to leave that they were willing to risk their lives and many died to hang on to the side of a fucking plane. As, as ridiculous an idea as that sounds, there were people that were that desperate. And, and for that reason, and I, I can probably agree with you on, on they should have probably pulled out in non-fighting time, not during fighting season, because in that respect, they would have been able to secure the airfields better, and maybe they would have been able to get more people out in a more orderly fashion, you know? Um, so in that respect, there there is things that can could have been done better. I I agree with with the you know overall sentiment that like we're pulling out and we don't have anything to do with this anymore. But um, you know the empathy in me cannot um, get beyond the idea of how bad it's going to be for these people. And I'm not saying that that justifies staying, but I cannot remove myself from feeling for the people of Afghanistan, and especially not after uh, some of the research that I did on Vietnam, which we'll talk about a little later, uh, because as we'll see when we discuss that, again, I, I mentioned that this is just step one of many, and shit got really bad for a lot of people in Vietnam and the parallels to the Taliban taking over Afghanistan are just very clear. Um, so, and, and my final point on this, and we can move on and maybe we can talk about some of the, you know, the history behind this. Um, my final point here is that while we might not have the responsibility to give a shit about Afghanistan anymore, cause we're pulling out and why we might have that luxury, unfortunately, there will be, in my opinion, regional instability due to refugee crises. There's also the bit about how the Pashtuns, you know, a, a good amount of Pashtuns are actually located in Pakistan. And Pakistan isn't doing very well economically. I just watched a video with their president um, and how they cannot support additional refugees, uh, not after everything that they've been going through, especially with the coronavirus and, and such like that. And we got to remember the fucking pa- Pakistanis have nukes, right? So there could be, there could be serious conflict. And while that might not directly affect us as Americans, it will almost invariably affect us in one way or another. And it could escalate into something that we can't ignore anymore. Of course, I think that um, American collaborators should be harbored to safety um, after after putting themselves on the line. If they're in danger, they should be harbored to safety. And and um, you know, I'm I'm supportive of refugee. I've I've heard right wingers say stuff like, "Oh man, if you're not willing to die for your country, then you should just stay there and die." You know, like you know, we don't want you if you are not a man enough. So I've heard stuff like that. No, I understand why you want to get out of there, um, but. Let's just let's let's not act like the Afghan society is some, you know, the Shire and the Hobbit being taken over by orcs. You know, it's basically 
it's an extremely corrupt cesspool of a government that is extremely oppressive anyway. So for a lot of people, it's going to be what difference does it make? And, you know, this isn't the first time that the U.S. has dropped one of their client states. You nope. know, you can you can go back right after World War II, Chiang Kai-shek's government in, in 1949, China, um, South Vietnam, obviously, Batista in Cuba, Somoza in Nicaragua. Um, these are all cases of, you know, the, the collapsing regime that ha- had, at the very least, been aided massively with U.S. military equipment and most of the time with trainers. And in some of those countries, the U.S. actively participated in those battles, right. and especially in the case in South Vietnam. Mm-hmm. In every one of these cases, the regime was unable to survive a military offensive by the insurgent forces without active U.S. participation. That's correct. So mm-hmm. the Afghan army didn't just surrender. They just switched sides. And that seems to be kind of a reoccurring theme in Afghan society. The, the withdrawal in Kabul, and I just want to make this one, one more point, and then let's go into the history of the Taliban and how you know, they, they grew from the 90s on. But you know, the person to blame is George Bush. <laughs> I don't think Trump or Biden deserve the blame on this. I think they should both be praised on this for their role. They should be thanking each other for their roles in this, even though they won't thank each other or praise each of other. Not. But for Trump, for Trump, for starting the withdrawal, and for for Biden for executing it, mm-hmm. um, I am not a, a expert on military logistics to tell someone how that withdrawal should have gone or what was the best way to do that. Um, that's not really my expertise. Obviously, it didn't look pretty, but at least it happened. And relatively, there wasn't a huge cost of life in the process. The blame lies with George W. Bush, who let Osama bin Laden get away at Tora Bora. I think on purpose to expand his terror war. Definitely on purpose. And to expand expand his war to Iraq. Mm -hmm. You know, it was Bush who decided to build a phony state in an Afghan national army of northern Tajik, Uzbek, and Hazara tribes against the Pashtun populations. And it was Obama who sent 70,000 more troops in the surge. Right. That's getting right. another thousand Americans killed, and who and who knows how many Afghans killed, in effect driving more people into the insurgency. Right, and it was the U.S. national security establishment who completely sold the American people on a fake bill of goods. They lied repeatedly about the status of the war. They lied repeatedly about the progress of the Afghan National Army. They lied repeatedly about, you know. The, the, the progress of the actual state itself. Mm-hmm. They repeatedly lied about everything, the, the national security establishment. And this was a failed project from the doom. And I wasn't alive during Vietnam, but it's unbelievable that we could try a project like that again and get away with it. Like I thought that in West Point, you studied the Vietnam War a lot. Yeah. Because that was a failure. Like, how many big time generals have their, like, theses and stuff? Or, you know, they write books on the Vietnam War. Like, H.R. McMaster wrote his thesis on the Vietnam War and how they could have won. How do you not learn these lessons? But I think you need to understand the 
reoccurring themes in Afghanistan. And um, you have to understand some structural features that make Afghanistan the way it is. And that's how you can really understand the ascent of power of the Taliban. The geography, I think most people who've listened to this know it's very rugged. It's very mountainous. It's a very poor place. It's landlocked. It has a social system of intense local loyalty. Mm -hmm. Thus, it has always had a very weak central state, if there's a central state at all. Right. Um, You know, a reoccurring theme in Afghanistan is that outsiders repeatedly intervene in the country. So the British did this. The Soviets did this. The United States did this. All for their own geopolitical reasons or the political reasons of the people in power. Mm-hmm. And what were the results of these occupations? It was not great. <laughs> they weren't great. They were all able to pacify the urban population centers, but then found the countryside inhospitable. And they left. They all withdrew. And after they withdrew, internal conflicts escalate until some new group establishes order, which often offends you know, external actors again who then intervene. Right. And this cycle just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. That is kind of the major themes or the cycle of life for Afghanistan. And um, Afghanistan has been in a perpetual state of war since 1978. So at this point, we're going well over 40 years of war, which in turn has created a war-like culture. You know, this it's a whole generation of people. For most people, that all you know is war. That's you never, right. You had never been born, and not war like as in most a lot of Americans now or young Americans now who are born after nine eleven. They've only been living through technically wartime, but you know we're not. Being it's not worse striked. here. Yeah, it's war somewhere else. Yeah, it's war somewhere else. You know, a place in like very foreign exotic lands that we can't really even imagine. Or point out on a map in a lot of times. You know, like the people that were fighting, they seem like they're from Star Wars. They really do. Like when you look at people from Talib like from the Taliban, they they look like they're that they came from a time machine. Like it's hard to understand it. Seeing in like these this real powerful imagery that is coming out of like the the presidential palace of like the Taliban on the gym equipment and stuff. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Like they're like fucking around in the gym and they're on swing sets and now they're playing go-kart. It's like, we. it's very weird imagery. It's like, you know, you took, you found somebody from the 17th century, you put them in a time machine and then you took them to an amusement park. That's what it looks like. It looks, it just looks odd. You know, this current cycle of violence that, you know, where we're in it all started in April of 1978 when the Afghan Communist Party seized power in a military coup and assassinated President Mohammad Daoud. And, you know, the communist government forged close ties with the Soviet Union and they launched a really ruthless purge all across the country. And these land and, and social reforms that were implemented, they were bitterly resented by the countryside and, you know, they, they sparked insurgency movements. So the, you know, the, the following year, um, you know, the Soviet Union invades 
And, you know, they, they actually topple the current communist president and they put their own guy in. And, you know, their goal was to prop up the successor regime. And, you know, this is, this is what prompts a Cold War um, escalation within the resistance. So Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, and uh, so did Robert Gates, they famously say, you know, we now have the opportunity to give the USSR its own Vietnam War, meaning that they now have the opportunity to drag the Soviet Union into a quagmire and bleed them dry. Just get them bogged down, make them lose morale through losing soldiers and wasting finances and just being in this totally weird kind of corrupt project that makes really no sense to anyone outside of your circle, like the Vietnam War was. The U.S., along with Saudi Arabia um, and Pakistan, started supporting multinational insurgent, insurgent forces known as the Mujahideen. And the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan made the U.S. invasion look like child's play. They invaded with a half a million soldiers, and they killed about a million Afghans. You know, we know that this invasion became a disaster for the Soviets. You know, they withdraw in 1989, and, you know, the Marxist regime that they propped up, you know, they lost support. And, you know, they finally, you know, were, were forced to step down, and they had to hand power over the Mujahideen. But here's what happened. The resistance groups that fought the Soviet troops and, you know, defeated the Soviet-backed government in Kabul, they all turned on each other. And after the Soviets withdrew, the aid spigots to the Mujahideen started to dry up from, you know, from the United States, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan. And, you know, there was a whole bunch of other countries who were funding this as well. We've done multiple bunch of episodes on this in more detail about, you know, the actual process of how the United States and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan were working together to fund these. So I would, I would encourage you to listen to those. Once those aid spigots dried up, these warlords... They deepen their involvement in the narcotics trade. Something that is almost synonymous with Afghanistan is opium. Mm-hmm. And you know, poppy seeds. <laughs> poppy seeds. You know, there's a real. You ever seen the movie War Machine? Yeah. Very funny movie, based off Stanley McChrystal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there's so many really funny parts in that. Um, you know, the part where the guy's like, he's he's explaining to uh, what's his the name. General, um, what's the fake name they give him? It's not General ah, McChrystal. They give him a fake name. I don't recall off the top of my head. Well, they're like, um, you know, they keep on calling us motherfucker. And, you know, in our, in our culture, it's not good to fuck. And he's like, ours, ours too. Ours, ours too. Ours too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's a scene where he's like, um, oh, this, this is heroin. He's like, uh, can we try uh, maybe growing growing wheat or something or sugar he's like no it's like due to protective tariffs in the united states no foreign co- we cannot give aid it's just like he's like all right it's a funny, really funny scene yeah um also all that shit is set up by the cia anyway so lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? 
Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's all black. It's all, um, you know, black budget. More than half of Afghanistan's uh, provinces, they have 28 provinces, they cultivate poppy. Or at least they were cultivating poppy. I don't know now. They, they were cultivating are, poppy in the, in the 80s. Uh, well, they still do. I'm just saying in the 80s a lot of the provinces were cultivating poppy and they were producing 250 metric tons of opium annually for export. That's nuts. (laughs) So during the war of resistance to the Soviet Union, Pashtun trucking networks were capitalizing on the transporting of arms to the fighters. But at the same time, they were also profiting off the drug trade. You know, they're called the trucking mafia, right? which they became really big power players at the time. Hey, and, I mean, uh, it, it was, it's hard to move shit around in, in Afghanistan. Like you said, it's, it's rugged mountainous terrain. Those, those like areas are hard to navigate, you know, and there was a, there was a market need for transportation in general. So it obviously makes sense that they would capitalize on it and, you know, that people would be making money and that they would be doing the activities, the transportation activities that would yield them the most money. Like they're not going to be moving fucking food around. They're not going to make that much money on that. You're going to move drugs and guns around. That's what makes money. High risk, high reward. That's what it is. Well, listen, man, the political economy of Afghanistan is just not really there. It's just too isolated. It's right. too far from things. Right. They don't have the ability, um, the industry level to mine their minerals to mine you know the raw material materials that they have the only thing they really can do and this is common with with countries that are intense poverty is grow crops and i mean it's not you don't really make much money growing cotton or stuff like that it's um, exactly so if you're gonna grow something you might as well grow some drugs unless (laughs) you're unless you're especially if you're compete they, they don't even have the ability to mass produce agriculture like we do in america and you know and and industrialized country where we perfected agriculture and and farming they grow opium because it's it's, you can sell it for more money you sell it on the black market like why what you you should there's a totally big incentive of of uh growing and selling opium um, but yeah, there's no ports, you know, there's nothing really being made in Afghanistan. They don't even have, it never went through, um, that 
kind of industrialization process that the Arab world went through, you know, after the World War II, because, you know, they never had a real government there. They never, I mean, not saying the government is the reason why the industrialization happens, but they just never, they're just removed from even the concept of a modern uh, market economy. Uh, They're just so far from that. Um, the majority of the society in the mountains and the valleys where they speak different dialects in every single in town. You know what I mean? Um, Seriously. But, you know, to go back to the, the trucking mafia, so these new transporting elites started emerging and they would collaborate with the Pakistani government to truck weapons to the Afghan rebels while, you know, also running these multi-million dollar, her- dollar heroin empires. And, you know, warlords within the Mujahideen groups, they were also involved in the narcotics trade. Um, you know, for example, um, you know, there was a, like, there's like a handful of like really famous, there's so many warlords, but there's a handful of really famous ones that, you know, that are kind of featured in every single book. Um, there's one named uh, Nassim uh, Akuandata. I can't really pronounce it, but, you know, he enforced opium production quotas for, 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 uh, um, poppy farmers in, in, in the Helmand Valley. And, you know, even like their very pious Muslim warlords like um, Gubaldin Hekmachar and Yunus Khalis were, were operating heroin labs. And, you know, these warlords would get into turf wars just like the black disciples and the vice lords do in, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just, they're, they're just criminal rackets that were fighting each other. Right, and everybody's in on it. Yeah. So you know, even with the removal of the of the Soviet-backed government, you know, things didn't get better. You know, what happened is that it turned into um, a chaotic anarchy. Not a not an ANCAP society, mm-hmm. a chaotic anarchy with just no uh, rules or laws. Just or boundaries. straight up anarchy. I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, these rival Mujahideen factions started fighting each other, and it just created this very highly unstable environment. And, um, you know, the violence created a high-risk environment for the transit industry. So, you know, they were having checkpoints. So, you know, they would, you know, basically what they would do is that they would just create checkpoints everywhere, these different warlords. So they'd see right. a truck, they'd stop the truck, they'd say, give me money. They didn't give them the money. They would kill the, kill them know, and the driver their shit. Yeah. and take their shit. That was basically what was going on within, the, you know, if you were a trucker, you know, it was life or death going out into the road. Um, so this prompted a coalition of, um, you know, trucking firms and drug traffickers, um, because this is bad for business too. You know, all these people killing each other. Right. Um, you know, religious leaders and uh, Pakistani intelligence to foster the emergence of the Taliban. The Taliban in Arabic means students, and um, you know they were founded in 1994 about halfway through the the civil war that ensued after uh, the Soviets withdrew by uh, Mullah Omar, you know, probably the most famous member of the Taliban who has since died. Um, But um, Omar Omar was 
um, you know, very different from the other Muhajin, the, the other leader, like warlords in, in the country. You know, they all came from more wealthy societies, like more wealthy, uh, you know, I think, you know, like parents, like the kids of like engineers and stuff, like upper class people and, you know, relative to Afghan society. And, you know, Mullah Omar was poor. He was like a poor Pashtun. And, you know, he had got his military training from the Pakistani intelligence, which was, you know, getting funded from the U.S. to train and equip fighters headed for Afghanistan. And, you know, what they were doing is that, you know, there was these young, traumatized fighters who were plucked out of Pakistani refugee camps. You know, a lot of them had actually, after the war, the Soviet invasion, they even went back to their madrasas to finish their Islamic education. And, you know, they were not happy with the current state of the, of the Muhajideen. I can't even pronounce it. Muhajideen. Is it Mujahideen or Muhajideen? Muhajideen. I know I'm just horrible with speech and language sometimes. When I, when I speak too much without a breath. When I speak too much without taking a breath. Um, but when... The Taliban, um, you know, first arrived to uh, southern Afghanistan, um, you know, around November of 1994. Um, you know, their ideology, it fell on fertile soil. You know, their their platform was kind of like the Republican platform, you know, last election. <laughs> law and order, law and order. Right. Law and order. Peace and law and order. That was their platform kind of what their platform is right now because like what the taliban is doing right now they're, they're just their their public relations team is just saying hey everyone just continue what you're doing law and order we're bringing peace law and order peace law and order it's like something common if you see if you're paying attention to what they're saying just right. keep on go to school if you have a job just go back to your job if you're in school just go to school just act like nothing's happening you know we'll patrol the streets law and order law and order that's like what what they're saying kind right. of a throwback you know what I mean? Well, I mean, this is all these people know, and yeah. uh, I have some I have some points of criticism about what you know, how how that's going to play out. But you know, we'll we'll get to that later. Well, yeah, I can certainly see how this is going to be unstable as well, and I certainly don't think that the Taliban are going to, uh, you know, bring Afghanistan into the twenty first century at all. Uh, it, it's we're talking about the Taliban. They're brutal bastards. Let's just let's just be real. Um, but I'm just saying there are reasons that a entity like the Taliban becomes popular enough, where effectively the entire um, Pashtun uh, plurality of the country, um, you know, kind of just jumps to their side as soon as they start showing any type of momentum in, in the insurgency. Mm-hmm. I think there is a reason why they pick up popularity, and it has to do, you know, with these reasons that are mainly geographical and um, have to do with the um, unstable history. Why something like peace and law and order is a very attractive um, slogan, campaign slogan. I mean, peace and law and order is how so many Republicans were able to get into Congress um, last election cycle. You know, there was supposed to be a big, 
a, a larger defeat of Republicans from Democrats, and the Democrats got a lot of shit for the um, a lot of protests and riots that went on the summer before, and that's how a lot of Republicans got into office. That's what they campaigned on, right? That's what they campaigned on. There's footage, is, and I'm not trying to say what's right or wrong about that. You can think whatever you want about you know the George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter protests and things like that. Um, but I'm just saying that Republican strategists were able to capitalize on the thing, on the imagery of looting and riots and things like that. And you know, there's a um, there's a tape recording of a um, or a phone call that was recorded by I think a Democratic congresswoman, I think from Virginia or North Carolina, screaming, screaming at other congresspeople, saying. If you say to fund the police one more time, we're going to lose everyone. It's an effective platform in times of scene of uh, instability. Mm. Um, so that's uh, what they uh, what we're doing now. Um, you know, more than you know, fifteen years into um, you know the war in Afghanistan, so. The, the new government was extremely corrupt and you know the whole country was in reality divided among these various warlords like um you know his uh his b islami uh by gulbuddin hekmachar and uh jamai islami and i'm not going to go through all of them because there's so many of them but um you know there's something you know the, the taliban reestablished an semblance of order um you know in this case a world where you can send your kid out to grab some food and expect him to return and not be raped in the process it turns out people prefer that not to happen so it's not surprising in the pashtun areas people started supporting the taliban and i don't know if you've ever heard this phrase before i've heard it in um you know, I forget where I've read it, but I've I've seen it, I've heard it, and I've read it in more than one place. Rape culture. Have you ever heard that phrase? Rape of culture. Well, it's been a term to describe segments of Afghan society. Segments of the society of Afghan society um, have something called a rape culture, which sounds quite horrible. I think anyone would agree. Um, you know, for, for example, I mean, if you just read some of the stories that come out of our own war there over the past 20 years, there's many really disturbing stories about Afghan police, Afghan army, Afghan officials, high up Afghan warlords, um, abusing children, uh, systemically. And it's quite, it's quite gross. For example, a couple of U.S. Marines were murdered in an insider attack. An insider attack is basically when you know a guy that you're training takes your takes a gun and kills you, betrays right. you, and kills you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know an insider assassination. So someone in the Afghan recruit takes takes the gun, walks to a barracks, and just starts shooting people up. Well, this this recruit did this to. A couple, I think three Marines while they were working out in the gym, and the reason why you know the the reason why they he did it 
was because, um, you know, his abuser was promoted to police chief or something like that. So the guy um, who raped him. Yeah. So the guy who raped him, he was a sex slave to this man and he had been promoted to police chief. And as revenge for that, you know, he decided to murder some Marines, which is obviously who, who promoted well. him to police chief. Was it the U.S. or, it, or just it was the just government? The, by... the, the system. The system. I'll send you the story, but if you mm-hmm. just type it in, there's a whole story about how there was a cover up on this, and this guy was a sex slave to this uh, high Afghan uh, police officer, and he had been promoted, and he had turned a gun on American soldiers. It's okay. really, it's a really sad story. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously for the life lost and for the sexual abuse that was taken and, and just for everything. It's a, it's a horrible story. Yeah, none, none um, of that sounds good. In fact, U.S. soldiers were told explicitly at some, I'm not saying everyone, but there were American soldiers who were explicitly told to ignore child sexual abuse. And you can read about this everywhere. You can read about this in the New York Times. You can read about this in main presses. These are stories that got out where they were soldiers were said to look the other way, you know, if your Afghan comrades were were you know, preying on children. It's fucked up. And there's a famous case of a Green Beret getting court martialed for beating up a child molester. Hmm. You know, this guy it, it, he beat the shit out of him. And he was court he got in trouble because he went oh. against orders. He deserved it. Which yeah, I which I think outside and you're just like, yeah. What the fuck? Why is this guy being court-martialed? Like, this guy just did the right thing. Like, how could you even take that? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the story goes on. There's, like, this antidotal story. I'm not sure if it's true or not. Um, it sounds true, and, and for the purpose of the points I'm trying to make, I'll just say it is true. Um, there was this notorious Muhajideen commander who specialized in raping children. And um, when the Taliban came, you know, they said, this is going to stop. And they hung him from the barrel of a tank. Whoa. This was how they restored order. They liked to hang people from, you know, construction cranes or, um, you know, high things where they can publicly show, hey, we just came into town. We took people who are violating Islamic law, and we just hung them in front of you. And this is the message that if you are violating law in our terms of order, we're going to kill you. Like, we're going to put you out in the middle of the public square, and we're going to hang you. And, you know, I think what's conflated, you know, people, one of the ways that we were sold on the war in Afghanistan is that we were... Um, kind of told that the Taliban and, and, and Al-Qaeda were the same thing. You know, when right. I was in seventh grade, or when I was 11 years old, when 9-11 happened, um, you know, it was, I, I couldn't, I didn't know the difference at all. I couldn't tell you the difference between, I thought they were the same group. I used to, I just used to think it was another name. I used to think that the Taliban was just another name for Al-Qaeda, but they were the exact same group. I had no idea that these were different countries and different regions and different I was like, oh, they I mean wear fucking funny politicians hats. still get this wrong today. Yeah. When Tim so Ryan I don't blame said you. that. <laughs> I know. I, I'm just saying that it's very easy to uh conflate 
you know, two groups of people together because they both wear exotic hats. Because I mean, what was what was our exposure to Middle Eastern or the greater or Central Asian societies um, twenty Fucking years ago? Indiana None. Jones at, at Indiana S? Jones. Yeah. Indy, bad date, bad date. Right. Indy, Indy. <laughs> That's all we got. The the fat guy in Indiana Jones. I'm gonna take a sip of water. So. If you could pontificate. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the the conflation of the two was pretty easy to make. I, I freely admit I also had no idea what the difference was because that we were just, that's how we were told. That's how we were taught. Even the and you're a half Arab didn't. and you didn't know the difference. No, of course I didn't. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, you know, they were, they, they basically didn't make any if I, if I remember correctly, and, and you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when when you would watch the media, they would just kind of use those two words somewhat interchangeably, or they would blanket the you know all the people in that region, even though they're two completely separate countries, like very far away from one another, as just straight quote terrorists, right? Like we weren't thinking of them even in terms of what their names were. We were dehumanizing them even further by just giving them a you know derogatory term terrorist. They're just terrorists, right? Just it's kind of like a Team America World Police, where you know everybody's a just just every brown person in in you know the middle the greater Middle East is in Central Asia is just a terrorist, right? It didn't matter where they were, what what like group that they were from. They're just terrorists, terror, 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 terrorist. It's just so so we weren't taught that there were different types of terrorists, right? Or that. You know, there were different types of groups there of varying degrees of, you know, terrorism. <laughs> you know, all we were just, you know, just they're enemy combatants. That was another word that we used, a, a, a less dirty word, but, you know, still generalized term, enemy combatants. They're just all of them are enemy combatants. You know, I used to feel, you know, real guilty for this, but I don't kick myself anymore for this any, anymore because, you know, a lot of. When you're younger and you're propagandized, I don't, it's not your fault for you getting the wrong impressions. You know, adults right. are the ones who are thinking of this propaganda. Right. Um, so there's no need, to, I think, to feel guilty if, you know, you, you're growing, if you're around the same age, if you're in your, you know, late 20s or early 30s and you were really fooled by this stuff because even adults were fooled by this stuff and, you know, people were actively trying to manipulate the population to bot, to sell. To, to to support this war but you know something i remember watching videos of like um you know um counterinsurgencies like airstrikes like you know with their heat goggles like shooting down guys running around like taliban running around in like right. the mountains and i used to be like oh awesome yeah yeah we got fuck him yeah you know got him got him and i'm like now like looking back in the contest like oh well you know i mean Someone invaded my country. I think I'd be doing that too. Like, right? You know, and, and it, not only that, but some some number of them, some large number of them, had nothing to do with anything, and they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they just got gunned down for no good reason. Kind of like you know those those videos that came out, you know, in the uh, the WikiLeaks drops that we talked about a couple of episodes ago on our episode of Julian Assange. Yeah, and if I saw that without like someone to explain to me what was going on. Um, when I was younger, I would have been like, oh, yeah, those were all terrorists. Wouldn't right. have questioned it. But someone had to explain, like, I had to read 
with multiple sources and kind of have it hammered in my head like hey those were civilians who were just murdered for no reason at all and right. they're they laughing they got, about it too and they were laughing at it and those were journalists employed by a major uh, not al jazeera the evil uh muslim news network that propagandizes <laughs> us and writes stories on peyton manning trying to destroy our sports heroes um they they were the ones who broke the Peyton Manning um, HD, HTH story. Oh, really? Uh, which is, yeah, <laughs> which is quite funny. I remember thinking that. I was like, oh, Al Jazeera, they're attacking our sports heroes now. <laughs> they, they do 9-11, then now they attack our sports heroes. Ah! <laughs> right. I remember having that feeling when that story came out. Yeah, but um, like to, to your point, though, this wasn't like, you know, in, uh, like a local or an Arab news network. This was like a like Reuters. This is like a respected this is a Reuters British <laughs> news network. Our friends. Those right. were the guys who were killed. You know, not not um you know some f- anonymous foreign um, journalist outlet that we probably would think were you know. Just I mean, to be clear, no, no journalists deserve to be gunned down in cold blood. Yeah, nobody course. does. You know, in 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 um. Absolutely not. These are just people who are living their lives who are put in a circumstance that is absolutely horrible. And, you know, they're making human choices that, you know, they make. Um, most of them, the the myth that has been pushed on us that, that Muslims are inherently violent or more violent than other people is a complete myth and it's phony. And even the most Islamist people... Is most Islamic pious Muslims do not revert to violence. We're talking about the fringe crazies of society who are resorting to terrorism and who are resorting to the behavior that ISIS does. And I guess the grander point I was trying to make with the a difference between the conflation with the Taliban in Afghanistan is, you know, not only are they different ethnicities and countries you know the taliban i mean the the um, al-qaeda mainly being um you know they're i mean they're everywhere you know they're muslims from all over the world but the base of it is arabs you know with with people from former soviet bloc states and even uyghurs um in china joining but the i mean there's uyghurs uh militants in afghanistan too which should make for um, you know, an interesting conversation that, cause I'm sure that will be in the narrative. I want to talk about that later. But, on. um, yeah, well, let's, let's put a pen in that and talk about this. But, um, you know, their, their ideology is different as well. The Taliban ideology. So I've, I've said this before in another episode, but, um, the, the Al Qaeda is, they're kind of like the radical, um, kind of like national socialist, extreme fringe um you know you know just crazy radical nut job lunatic and the taliban is more like the ultra consort conservative orthodox um type you know they only care about what's you know in front of them and you know kind of the world they can imagine in front of them in, in Afghanistan, and it doesn't really go beyond that. Right, they're not know, trying to um, build a caliphate. They're just trying to yeah. exercise ex- Islamic law in their, like, village. Yeah, they're just trying to exercise Islamic law and, you know, as, as uh, you know, in their state of Afghanistan. That, still bastards, but different, different, still, still bastards, different scale of bastard. Still <laughs> going into indiscriminately killing villagers and things like that. Still doing awful things. 
I'm just saying there's no kind of pipe dream of global jihad right. in within the Taliban ranks. That is not something that is core to their ideology like al-Qaeda or ISIS or things like that. And even the background, like, um, you know, the the most of the Taliban and these guys are illiterate. Um, you know, they're come from very, very poor societies. I mean, Af- al-Qaeda now, too, though, that is kind of where they recruit from. But the founders of al-Qaeda were a bunch of rich boys. Right. Like Osama bin Laden was the son of a billionaire. Mm-hmm. And Zawahiri, his, you know, the, you know, his, um, the leader of his Islamic Jihad that, you know, kind of that, that united with Osama bin Laden to, you know, kind of create, you know, the prototype of Al-Qaeda. He was a doctor. He was a famous doctor in Egypt. So, you know, they were these rich boys who, you know, had the sophistication and the money and the connections um, to travel across the world and to, you know, create these grand plans and, you know, recruit these people. And, you know, they had the resources to pull off these um, these large scale terrorists. Here's, here's a good way. Here's a good way to put it. The Taliban are like pinky and Al Qaeda are like the brain in that he's always trying to take over the world. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a good analogy. Um, I think the, the Taliban are like a bunch of uh, I don't know. They're like you're just conservatives <laughs> like that's it you're you're concert you're conservatives and then your al-qaeda or like you're just you know whatever extreme you dislike that you want to project on them if you want to say you're extreme right-wing alt-right people or extreme alt you know crazy leftist whatever whatever suits you i know people just like to project whatever uh political opinion on people they hate Right. Like how they do Hitler, they'll be like, Pick "Well, one. Hitler was a socialist." <laughs> no, right. he wasn't. And like, it was actually left wing. You know, right. they just project what they don't like on what and say that's what Hitler was, um, because I mean, Hitler was obviously a horrible person. All right, but move on. <laughs> let's move on. I don't want to get too lost in this uh, this point. Um, but uh, to go back to the Taliban and like their initial expansion, um, you know how how they took over Afghanistan, at least, you know, how they took over Afghanistan in the 90s, they did this by um, not even really doing that much fighting. Like, they would go to these other militia groups and these warlords, and, you know, I don't know the exact way or how they negotiated these terms and stuff like that, but, you know, they would say, hey, something along the lines of going like, hey, listen, we don't want to fight you. We just want you to, like, be with us and love Allah like us. And, you know, we're all Muslim brothers. Why are we Why are we doing this? You know, if you join us, we won't kill you. And then if you don't join us, you know, we'll kill you. And that was good enough for them to um, catch enough momentum and, and take over pretty much 90% of the country by 1997, including, you know, the major cities like, like Kabul. Mm-hmm. And they didn't destroy Kabul. They never destroyed Kabul. They basically walked in there, and um, you know the the Northern Alliance was a big fraud. It was a big nothing, and it didn't do anything. And the Taliban was the only real legitimate power because they had the support of the plurality um, Pashtun population, and you know that was it. They had the will to have it, and the other uh, kind of tribe groups did not. Um, but you know, now, uh, so I, my favorite, 
And Scott Horton put me on to this guy, but he's really good. Bill, well, he's really good and he's really bad at the same time. His name is Bill Rogio, and he's a really good writer. Very good, like, war writer. Um, very easy to follow. Explain, very fact-based. And, um, you know, explains what, exactly what's going on. But he's also a war hawk. A huge war hawk. But, you know, it's, I, I recommend reading his stuff. It's called The Long uh, War Journal. And he was writing that, you know, man, he was saying all this. So, um, and there's a, a valley called the Panshir Valley. And a, a very well-known uh, Muhajideen commander, son, his son, is trying to form a resistance to form up against the Taliban. Um, Ahmed Masood, his son, his name is Ahmud Shah Masood. Um, he wrote a, uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post yesterday. We're recording this on Thursday night. And is calling them to resist the Taliban. And he's saying that we need help. So we're already seeing, you know, a bit of uh, a bit of a breakup. Not almost a breakup, but we're seeing like some resistance in that form. And you know, Bill Rogio's conclusion is that the um, the White House refuses. The media is refusing to really um, speak about this because they don't want to put the pen. They're scared that if there's a will to fight in Afghanistan then the Pentagon will have to go back and they will and like they'll be forced to go back. And he's kind of laying it out in hawk terms. You're like, well, if, if we knew that there was a will to fight, the American people would want to go back there. Right. It goes contrary to what Biden is saying, where like, oh, they don't, they don't want to fight. So why should we fight for them? Right? Exactly. Yeah, and I get it. Honestly, you know, it's I don't, also the, I don't know. the vice president too, uh vice, the former, uh, former current. I don't know what to call him anymore. The, the guy who was the vice president before Kabul fell. Uh, he stuck around in the country even when the president like basically abdicated the throne and fucking bounced. Um, and he's in that same area in the Panjshir Valley doing basically the same thing, like trying to organize a resistance. Um, let's put a pin in the Panjshir Valley because I, I definitely have some um, questions about that. But but yeah. All right. So I know that we let's. Uh, Let's try to compare this, like going back to the optics of this. So obviously, you know, the optics are um, horrible, horrible mm -hmm. optics. Is this, you know, when I say best case scenario, I may, I say best case scenario in terms of just like overall destruction um, in us getting out. But as far as politically, politically, it just didn't look good because, you know, you're not going to know, I mean... Most people just don't really know that much about these foreign areas, and you don't. I can't really blame them. So, a lot of the, the reaction that I get from normies, so people who are just normal people going about their lives, they see this and they're like, "Oh, well, what the hell are we doing? Why are we leaving? We should at least leave, like keep this, keep the status quo there. This is horrible." Um, and like, oh, Biden's this first big mess up someone needs to get fired and i'm sure a lot of people should be fired but you know i'm curious to hear um you know the comparison that's coming out is like this is the fall of saigon this is the mm -hmm. fall of saigon with people helicopters and you know yeah. they were making that comparison prior saying 
hey, don't worry. When we pull out of Kabul, it's not going to be like the fall of Saigon. There's not going to be people hanging on the helicopters. There's not going to be, you know, they explicitly said, there's not going to be people hanging on helicopters like when we left Saigon. <laughs> and there were. And <laughs> there was, pe- there were people hanging on the planes. <laughs> well, they weren't wrong about the helicopters, I guess. The image, yes. no, the, the image that like was yeah. instilled before that heli- that, that video plane of the plane thing. came mm-hmm. out um, of the people hanging on to it and stuff like that, there was the, a picture of um, like two of those helicopters yeah like a helicopter transporting Mm -hmm. people out of the embassy right and that was like the the still frame for every single afghan story and you know apparently that's how they transport people out in and out of the embassy anyway i mean Um, duh it's the most efficient way (laughs) yeah so i don't i don't know but that was the image like oh this is bad right come watch television now come on come on watch our watch news now story we're leaving war. Get angry, mad. All right, let me let me let me take this part because I I did a lot of research on on this particular comparison, and you know I think where I want to start by saying is that Afghanistan has been going through what what appears to be like a civil war for like like you said like forty years or million years whatever long fucking time right, and now that the Taliban is basically taking over Afghanistan, you could probably say that this you know would be civil war is over um, again for the second time or third. I don't know. I'm losing count here. And and then, you know, you pointed out those videos and, you know, earlier of uh, people like desperately trying to flee Kabul and like hanging on to the airplanes and shit. And, and obviously, you know, the, the people are making those comparisons to the, the fall of Saigon at the end of the Vietnam war. And actually in a lot of ways, it's pretty accurate. Um, it's not, it's not exactly the same, but it's, it's accurate in many ways. Um, so I wanted to take some time to talk about what happened after the fall of Saigon uh, to see what other comparisons or or even maybe some hypotheses that we can make about Afghanistan's future under the Taliban. Um, so I want to start by saying, like, I've read some pretty good articles on this one. Uh, and one thing that I learned was that at the end of the Vietnam War, there was a lot of questions like difficult questions that were raised um, specifically by the South, by the people who lost. Um, and those questions were things like, like what kind of government are we going to have after this? You know, would the South have like the ability to have like autonomy from the communist North or, or would they be like a, somehow integrated, you know, um, in some equal way, you know, will they have equal representation? And also What's going to happen to all the people that the communists look at as enemies, like, you know, capitalists and, you know, people who are associated with the South Vietnamese government or, you know, people who are associated with Americans or French backers, you know? And and honestly, just, just those questions alone, you can ask very similar questions about the end of this Afghanistan war. You know, like, what kind of government are they going to have? Like, I think they're calling themselves right now an Islamic emirate, whatever that whatever that means. They're going to be an Islamic emirate, right? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> they're going to have they're they're going to be they're going to have Sharia law most likely, and um, yeah, but I mean, again, really Sharia know. law is like like there are many interpretations of Sharia law and many interpretations of Islam, right? So it's it's that's it, it's well, not yeah. super clear. <laughs> There's know? a difference between Sharia law in 
Saudi Arabia and Sharia law in Iran. Um, I mean, they're both not, they're both not good. No, (laughs) no, neither are good, but like. Neither are good, but Saudi Arabia is worse. But, but the point though, is that, that, that because of those differences, like you can make the argument that nobody knows what the hell kind of government this is going to be. Because it really just depends on how they decide to interpret Sharia law. Well, here, here is the silver lining and here's well, where I'll sound a little bit like a Taliban apologist. Um, it certainly seemed like the people in these videos were a younger generation, and I don't know what that's worth. Let's get let's get back to that. Put put a pin in that. I have some stuff to say about that later. Um, uh, one of the other questions. So going back to the second question from Vietnam, but you know, will any region of Afghanistan have autonomy from the Taliban? So right now, that Panjshir Valley area that we were just talking about a little while ago, you know, there maybe they'll hold some resistance. Maybe not. I don't know. Probably not. Let's be real. Right. Um, you know, the urban centers are probably not going to, you know, according have any... to Bill Rogio, they're not most likely going to have a, a solid resistance. And he has been pretty um, as much of a pretty hawk hawkish. as he is. <laughs> yeah. Bill Rogio has been 100 percent accurate about the fall of Kabul and everything that's been going on. So, I mean, I will grant him that. And he said mm-hmm. it's most likely not going like I he I've he's a legitimate authority on Afghanistan. Right. Um, despite, you know, some of his conclusions about how po- foreign policies should be conducted. And he says that they're not. Well, there you go, you know, but it's still a question, right? Yeah. And then the final and probably most important question is what's going to happen to the people who the Taliban view as enemies? So I'm talking about like Afghanistan military, politicians, U.S. collaborators, activists, women, (laughs) you know, probably nothing good, right? I think we can probably both agree that they're not going to, it's not going to be good. Well, they came out with a statement saying that we will, because, man, I think it was Germany that came out and said, we're not going to give foreign aid to, um, you know, this new government if they implement Sharia law. And they came out and said, we will, um, you know, treat women with as much equity as Islamic law lets you. They said right. something along within, the lines of that. Within the confines of Islamic law. I know. Yeah. It's all talk. And, yeah, and, as, and, and as I as I go on with this, I think you'll find that, you know, a lot of similar talk was had um, from the North Vietnamese that and, and it just it pretty much went away immediately, like the moment that they had an opportunity. So I'll get there. All right. So the fall of Saigon was in 1975. And, and this was the like the first step towards reunifying Vietnam. And I'm, and I'm making a very clear comparison here. Like, uh, Taliban taking over Kabul is literally only the first step of, like, creating a new Afghanistan, a unified, whatever that, whatever, like, like whatever that's going to pan out to be, Islamic Emirate, whatever. But the biggest challenge for uh, Vietnam at the time was the reconciliation of two different totally different political cultures and ways of life. And you can make that same exact argument right now. You know, um, there are, uh, obviously the, the Taliban have a way of thinking. They are a Islamic focused, uh, uh, group, uh, both politically, culturally, etc. Um, but for the better part of the last 20 years, maybe less than that, let's, let's call it 10 years, at least the population centers in Afghanistan have been mostly Western Right, mostly capitalist, even though they've they're rife with all kinds of, you know, corruption and 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 issues and things like that. There there is it is clear that there is a very big political and social 
and cultural divide between these two things. So, so just like in the fall of Saigon, the biggest challenge uh, for Afghanistan, for the Taliban, will be to somehow figure out how to manage these very different political viewpoints. And one thing that was standing in the way of reconciliation in, in, in Vietnam uh, was the North's, uh, North Vietnam's like very deep suspicion of like lots of people in the South and their doubts about their loyalty to communism and the communist regime. And so there was this like culture in Vietnam after the war of making Southerners feel like their entire life before 1975 was a crime and that uh, that they were needed to be punished for it or or you know that that they needed to atone for some kind of sin right because they were engaging in capitalism and 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 this was a very prominent um uh, uh. i'm jane perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former beijing bureau chief for the new york times i've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places somalia indonesia pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done. Especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Like, thing that was happening immediately after. And, and you can draw some comparisons kind of already to how an Islamic emirate that's run by the Taliban might view Afghanis who were accustomed to a more, you know, westernized culture as sinners. As an example, uh, already you're seeing shopkeepers painting over their windows, like you see like a hair salon, right? And, you know, on the, on the hair salon and on the windows, there's like a, a picture of some woman and she's not wearing a hijab or anything like that because it's a fucking hair salon. And they're painting over the, the, the images because that's, you know, the, the Taliban an Islamic run, you know, uh, 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 dictatorship basically would, would obviously view that as sin, right? That is haram. That is not good. So we're already seeing this, that, that there's going to be very likely a culture imposed from the Taliban onto, you know, people specifically in those population centers that, that their lives before the Taliban rule is sin, Oh, well, yeah, of course. I mean, in Saudi, I mean, just look at Saudi Arabia. And if you go to a, um, 
I was watching this documentary by D, uh, DWS. Mm-hmm. What's the Ger- that's the German network, right? Deutsche Welle. Yeah. They did a really good documentary on women in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And um, they do a couple of good documentaries. But um, they show the part where they went into a mattress store. And the mattress store blurred out the female models mm-hmm. because they were not wearing masks right or they or because they were near bed i forget the reason or what law it violated but they Doesn't were matter blurred, what the they reason were blurred is. out like it, it was yeah so yeah um they'll they'll probably implement uh conservative uh things like that and they mm-hmm. won't be uh uh you know friendly to homosexuals or 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 gay people or activists um, or, yeah i'm sure they will not have progressive views no, no and, and, and in like, order to do that they're gonna have to impose a forced assimilation on lots and lots of people and in the north uh in, in vietnam the north vietnamese government's approach to doing this to like creating loyalty to communism was often brutal and what it ended up doing is alienating a lot of people rather than winning them over Right, they're not going to, you know, win over, you know, the the educated women of Kabul who are, you know, pursuing a, an advanced degree by forcing them to wear a burqa and maybe not go to school anymore, right? That that's just, you know, that's not going to be, it's not going to be received well, right? Uh, and so you can make that argument that that the Taliban are probably going to follow a very similar path as the North Vietnamese did in forcing afghanis to assimilate to the islamic emirate well can i can i uh throw throw a peg in there sure or, or a rock in there yeah so here's here's um i think a key point even though the, the taliban control the country right now and you know it's been a couple it's been days now so we have i i have no business trying to i i'm obviously not an expert in this at all um so i have no you know, my any prediction I make doesn't, you know, doesn't really matter. However, um, the Taliban will are, um, so th- you know they essentially became the occupied to the occupier in Kabul. So I don't think it's going to be easy for them to enforce hardcore Sharia in these urban centers. Because um, I think that's just a, a recipe for, you know, creating a lot of resentment if they're going to do that. So I, I don't. I think that they're a little bit more rational than that, and I don't think they're going to uh, go that hardcore. Maybe they'll have some areas where there's a little bit more autonomy where they can practice, um, you know, more Western type values. Because um, I think it, that will be a recipe of disaster if they just immediately. You know, take every woman and you know uh, treat them like you know treat them like they do in Saudi Arabia. Um, I will say though, outside of you know Pal, I almost said Palestine, outside of uh, of uh, Kabul, you know, in the rural rural area, because they're they're countryside. You know, it's kind of like the equivalence if. A bunch of um, people from like 
Kentucky and West Virginia and, you know, the rural Pennsylvania um, all just like took over New York and they're like, okay, or took over Washington, D.C. We got the government now. You know what I mean? We got the guns. We're the force to be reckoned with. Yeah, they may be the monopoly on violence, but they won't be will they they won't be for long if they start imposing a lot of, you know, very restrictive um, things on society that does not want them. So I, I think that you're they right. understand that there's you're, a fine line. You're you're right, but, but like let me let me tell you more uh, about Vietnam sure. because I think you know, the North Vietnamese understood this very well. You know, uh, it, it would have been easier for them to control rural areas than it would be, you know, Saigon, as an example. Um, and so the North understood that in order to, I mean, the thing is, though, that the North wasn't just going to be like, oh, well, I guess we can't, you know, I guess we can't impose communism on fucking Saigon because, you know, it would create a lot of resentment and it would be bad for us. No, they don't stop there. People who are hungry, power hungry and, you know, are, are going to immediately do everything they can to con- cons- consolidate political control. And that's exactly what they did because they needed to consolidate political control in the South in order to what they would call unify the country. And some steps that they did to do this uh, were eliminating potential rivals, re-educating people who were suspected of disloyalty, and preventing other ideologies and beliefs fr- from competing with uh, socialism. And I want to break those down. Um, so first one, becoming ri- um, the, 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 the rivals. Um, okay, so in 73, right, this is before the, the, um, the fall of Saigon here, there was these Paris Peace Accords. Uh, it was just obviously a set of negotiations that, that tried to end the conflict. Um, according to those peace accords, the South Vietnam was supposed to continue as a separate and sovereign state uh, until the North and the South could agree upon how you know, how would Vietnam look via elections or negotiations, right? And the North agreed to this and the South agreed to this. But quickly after 75, when, when everyone pulled out, they they reneged on this deal real fast, like super duper fast, right? So I want to make a comparison real fast to, you know, how uh, the Taliban right now are saying, hey, don't worry about it if you, if you, you know, if you're, going to school, go back to school. If you got a job, go to do your job. They're saying that now, but the North Vietnamese were saying the same shit before, right? They were saying, oh, don't worry about it. We're not going to communize the South immediately. Like we'll figure it out later, right? And pretty much the moment, you know, within a year of of uh, the U.S. pulling out of Saigon, um, there was a meeting of the North and South leadership and a decision was made to merge the two Vietnams into a single state, and they called this the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. And let me be, be very clear about this decision. It was not a debate. Uh, it was not a consensus. The North did this despite the Southern's you know, uh, leadership's objections to this. They just did it, right? And the South of Vietnam had no say in this process in reunifying. And much like how you know the Taliban is going to unilaterally reunite Afghanistan, they're not gonna they're not gonna like go to the negotiating table with like the former heads of state of you know the the Afghanistan democracy and be like, hey, let's figure out how to m- make a country that works for both of us. No, they're very clear about what they want. They want an Islamic er- uh, emirate in the entirety of Afghanistan, and that's that. There, there is no room for 
you know, the former, you know, democratic leaders, they're not going to play a part in the Emirate, you know? So, so, so just immediately, I think we should, we should not take what they're saying, what the Taliban is saying right now with a heavy grain of salt, like the whole fucking, you know, a whole salt mine's worth of it. Let's talk about the second thing, or unless you had a comment on that. So listen, I understand. I don't, I obviously don't, wouldn't take what they say or I'll take what they say with a grain of salt. However, um, I think the, the difference between Afghanistan and Vietnam is that, I mean, these people don't even, a lot of the people in North Viet and South Vietnam were migrants from North Vietnam escaping, um, you know, escaping communism or being coerced. I could say the Catholic same things about the, 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 the like city that. centers in, in, in Afghanistan. A lot, a lot of people but were in, escaping uh, the rural areas where there was uh, a lot of fucking warlords and, and unrest. I mean, even, even, even your run-of-the-mill military people were escaping to the city centers. But in Afghanistan, all these are, you know, it's very ethnically driven and language-driven and um, you know, it's ethnic. There are different ethnicities that are that are dividing the the country essentially. Like you know, the the Pashtuns, the Uzbeks, the Tajiks, um, the Hazaras. Like you know, the Northern Alliance are basically um, everyone who's not Pashtun kind of ganged up together to. And the Taliban um, doesn't give a fuck, right? The Taliban. But is, I don't is think very the. I don't think. That. I don't think that the Taliban have the capability to to pull any to pull that off um so i think they're kind of forced to to uh they're going to be kind of forced to um you know be to be a little bit more tolerant than they normally would be and another reason is is because um in the 90s the u.s let this happen because Hey, like our allies kind of like them, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, like the Taliban. Um, Bill Clinton was like, hey, I think these guys can develop into another Saudi Arabia. That won't be too bad. So, you know, we weren't really in bad terms. And now we live in a unipolar world. Like the United States is at this moment, I don't think it's going to be like this forever, but is the power of the world. And, um, you know, it has the ability to coerce countries into um, behaving certain ways um, through aid spigots and things like that. And other countries typically go along with that. You just saw Germany say, hey, if you implement Sharia law, we're going to end our foreign aid. I think there's a way to um, dangle the carrot in front of them and say, hey, listen. You have to become normal or, you know, we're just not going to deal with you. Um, you're not going to have entrance into this global economy and you're going to be a poverty stricken poorhouse, and, and that's not going to last very long for your regime if you're completely in poverty. I'm telling you, man, um, I'm telling you that this, this has just been there, read that. But, but in the Vietnam's same, case, same, it was, it was a, the, the same, the Soviet Union, though, the same sentiments were, were happening, uh, in Vietnam, they were t- they were the international community, specifically the United States, was 
you know, they placed an embargo on Vietnam for a while after they pulled out uh, and were saying, hey, we're not going to give you any aid if you, you know, if you guys are dicks to the south, you know, but they still did it anyway. And I'll go back to my point that the Taliban do not give a fuck about all of the other uh, ethnics and cultures and, and societies that are within uh, um, Afghanistan. All they care about is creating one unified Islamic Emirate in Afghanistan. And that's it. And they don't care. And I bet that they'll do everything in their power to do so. And I think they're tracking just like the North uh, Vietnamese did when they uh, reunified uh, the two Vietnams. And, and remember, one of the conditions, uh, one of the things that they're doing in Afghanistan, the Taliban are, are straight up saying, okay, cool, you know, just lay down your weapons and we won't kill you and you guys can go about your business and, you know, we're not going to change anything. They have the means <laughs> to force people to do whatever the fuck they want because they definitely have the the um they have the as you say the monopoly on on violence right there as a as a condition of sweeping all of these you know many provinces in in afghanistan the, the largest most impactful part of this is that they're they're de-weaponizing the population centers so they they have no means to resist in that respect and so here's another way uh that north vietnam uh, imposed themselves on the South, and it was through re-education. And it was a big priority for the North because, and, and, and by re-education, of course, I mean brainwashing, it, because they needed to assimilate people to their new government. And what was tricky about this is that the new government couldn't just totally replace or kill everyone in the South who had, you know, experience, you know, things doing things like running boring parts of the country, right? That would be a disaster. But they set up these programs to try to re-educate them so that they can, you know, keep the people that were necessary doing what they were doing and also try and, you know, quell any dissent. Uh, so a lot of low and mid-level um, kind of like civil servants in the old South Vietnamese government were, and they ended up being replaced by Northern officials. And I'm not talking about, you know, political servants like, you know, like politics and stuff. I'm talking about like people who ran schools and hospitals and utilities and things like that. Um, and those folks basically got sent away to camps for a few days or a few weeks to go through these like retraining courses. So, you know, communist brainwashing basically. But the point I'm making here is that they were able to uh, replace a lot of them from the North. The Taliban is a, is mostly a bunch of young men who are like warlords. A lot of them probably even illiterate so they don't have the luxury of being able to replace these people so the best they can do is like enforce some kind of like sharia law training camp which i i imagine that this is totally probable you know they're gonna they're gonna need to if they're if they want if they're serious about exercising a you know um a sharia law and, and an islamic emirate in afghanistan they're gonna need to set up a program of brain forceful brainwashing for a lot of people um but in Vietnam, like people like high-ranking officials and soldiers and stuff like that, uh, they their re-education was a lot longer and a lot more severe. Some people spent years in camps. They were tortured. They were forced to do hard labor. Uh, some were taken away that, and they were just never seen again. Uh, in total, about a million people in the former South Vietnam were subjected to some kind of re-education. 
And and it makes you think about how the Taliban might also go through that same type of re-education for millions of people in Afghanistan who, like I said before, spent the better part of like 20 years in urban city centers with a more or less Western lifestyle. They're, if, if they're serious about making, uh, about enforcing Sharia law, that's this is what they would probably do. I also want to keep uh, tell you a little bit about the demographics here, because keep in mind, 46% of Afghanis are under the age of 15. That's almost half of their entire country. Weren't even born when the beginning of the, the war started. So the, the full demographics are 0 to 14 uh, is 40%. 15 to 24 is 21%. 25 to 54 is 31%. And then it drops off a fucking cliff. There's 55 to 64 is 4%. And there's a little, little under 3% uh, are 65 and older. So we're talking about, if we go from like 0 to 24, we're talking about like 62, 63% of the entire population who, you know, are have grown up and, and have been raised in you know, what you can argue to be a quasi-Western society. So if they're, if the Taliban are going to hold on to any of the ideas of, of making an Islamic, you know, emirate, they're, they're going to need to do a lot of re-education. And North Vietnam had the Viet, had the uh, monopoly on violence and they were able to force people to do it. I, I, I can't, I can imagine that the Taliban would be able to do so as well. I think, a big difference, though, is that North Vietnam had, like, a legitimately fucking huge, like, really big army rolling through. A better trained army than the Taliban. They're a more formidable foe than the Taliban is right now. I I just... I I get it. I, I understand that... I, I Well, I think if the Taliban were to pull anything like that off, like a re-education thing I mean, it would just mean um funding madrasas and you know they, they would have to be heavily financed by um pakistan as well as saudi arabia which probably will happen or could happen um it's going to be interesting to see what china's relationship will be because they have incent, I think their major incentive. I don't want to go too off. Um, should I? Should I put the pen in this? I don't want to go. Yeah, too I, I think so because I, d- I definitely want to talk about China and the Uyghurs and stuff like that. But la- okay. last little bit about this. So they had this basically uh, in Vietnam. They had this uh, a tool uh, to identify what they called quote bad elements. So people who were opposed to communism, um, and, and it was called a, a personal dossier, which were. Uh, they would have people write up like a like a biography of themselves, which was like you know what's your name, you know what are the names of your family, uh, what are what's your ethnicity, you know w- what's your religious affiliation, what do you do for a living, what do your you know, and then like permutations of that, and they used this information to categorize people, right? So good or bad, uh, and you know obviously if you worked for the French or the Americans, you were bad. If you owned a business, you're a capitalist, and therefore you're bad. Uh, if you fought against the U.S., you're good, and so on and so forth, right? And you can imagine that you know, the good people got better perks than the bad ones. Um, in total, I think something like a third of the South's population were uh, believed to be in the bad category. So it really sucked for a lot of the people in Vietnam then. Um, but, I, I mean, 
I, I gotta say, I, I don't think that the Taliban have the capacity to force people to, you know, write personal dossiers about everyone and then process all that information to figure out who's good and who's bad. But I can see some root- 70% of the population can't write. Exactly. Exactly. But what I, Dylan- what I can see though, and, and this is a thing almost everywhere, right? Like almost everywhere. Uh, I can see them setting up a, some kind of rudimentary form of snitching, right? Where the Taliban would just have people snitch on each other and say, oh, they're, they're, you know, Western supporters or they're, oh, they're, they're, you know, they're Haram or some shit like that. Right. And the, the, the real question is whether they'd, you know, see, all right, cool. Somebody snitched on you. You know, what happens, right? Are, are they going to try to reeducate you or are they going to sh- straight up kill you? You know? Uh, and that's, that's what we're already seeing this now, right? Like we're already seeing people like, like selling out their, their, you know, uh, maybe not their family maybe even their family shit but like selling out their neighbors and shit like that to try and get a leg up with the taliban be like oh yeah they're you know they were in the army or something like that you know they were an american collaborator collaborator we're already seeing reports of this happening now um a couple other things uh the communist government in, in vietnam um was obviously a an authoritarian regime and i mean from the looks of it I'd imagine that the Taliban is going to be authoritarian as well. Um, so you can imagine a lot of institutions will probably be taken under the Taliban control, just like they were in Vietnam. So in Vietnam, things like media, schools, religious institutions, shit like that, uh, all of that was brought under government control because they were all a threat to their ideology. Right? You can't have people learning how democracy works or have people criticizing the government in the paper. You know, So they shut down newspapers. They, you know... They started keeping records of who was going to religious services. Um, they also burned books and shit uh, that weren't supportive of the revolution, which, you know, once you start seeing books burned, you know, it's just a bad sign. Um, and, you know, they started swapping out teachers from the South to the North. Now, um, I, I could see the Taliban taking over the news media pretty easily. And I think they're kind of already are, right? I mean, they're holding press conferences and shit, right? So I think that they've, they've got that on lock. Um, but the makeup of the Taliban, like I said before, is it's just mostly young men, uh, un- uneducated men at that. So I'm not entirely sure how they would replace things like teachers. Um, I think that would be very difficult for them to do. Um, if they were to do anything, they would just try, as you said, to force people to, into these madrasas, and they would need probably outside help to, to get those funded. Um, but if they were to succeed in that, that would be absolutely disastrous for the future economy and, and more so for the you know the kids. Remember, 45% of them are under the age of 15. Um, so there's that. Um, now, I could talk uh, a bit more. We're running a little bit long. Um, I can summarize a few additional points. Big differences between uh, Vietnam, uh, North Vietnam, and the Taliban are that obviously the, the Vietnamese are are a um, communist regime, and they you know they basically communized the entire economy. So they confiscated all private property and they nationalized every business, and and it backfired really quickly. You know because things like collectivizing farmers and not really having incentives on production, you know, caused everything to fall rapidly so much so that they were in a famine. Um, that's probably not going to happen, <laughs> uh, with the Taliban because they're obviously not, um, communists in that respect, but something tells me that, that 
that the Taliban aren't exactly uh, the right people for the job of running a government. I think they're probably the perfect people to take over a government, but actually doing the work of governance is a different story. And I think the warlord nature of Afghanis um, suggests to me that if anything, the economy is just going to be run like a runaway oligarchy, right? Um, so, you know, it's unfortunate, but going from straight up capitalism or kind of capitalism in Afghanistan today to some kind of half-baked system uh, like, you know, handshake, backroom deal, warlord shit uh, is definitely going to have negative implications on the economy, which is, is I mean, I, th- I just think that's inevitable, unfortunately. Um, so different in the sense that they will be economy. different e- economic things, but, you know, the same in the sense that you'd be replacing capitalism with something stupid. I think here's here's our disconnect right now. Afghanistan is like barely a state at all anyway. Like there's a couple of urban centers and there's the borders that were drawn and the board the urban centers are just almost completely removed from the country like they're just different worlds. And um I don't think the Taliban have the capability to um, run this mass propaganda campaign to coerce people. I just don't think they have the ability or um, the incentive to do it. I think that they are going to um, kind of be forced to be a little bit more tolerant than they were. Um, I'm not going to say they're going to be tolerant. I'm just saying that relative to what they were, I think I think they're going to have to they're going to have to 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 do that just based off what I've seen. I think I don't know. I think I don't know how much uh, stock you could put into this, but just the fact that a lot of the guys are younger and they have cell phones and stuff like that. I mean, it could be younger generation, a younger generation type thing, which is more willing to, um, who's maybe kind of more removed from the old ways. Um, you know, something about society in, in Afghanistan, man, there's pockets in the rural country, like the old, like ancient Pashtun codes that are like way more, you know, uh, backwards than, or, or just old school than um, anything that, you know, even, you know, Saudi Arabia teaches or Saudi Arabian madrasas um, teaches like, you know, where, you know, they basically say that women are live, like they treat women like livestock. So compared to that, the Taliban are, are to the left. You know, I guess we're, we're talking about the urban centers uh, right we, now. We are. And, and to be clear, to, to be clear, I, I, I kind of see where your, where your point is. Uh, it is true that the population centers um, or the demographics of Afghanistan skews heavily towards rural than it does uh, in you know major urban centers like Kabul. However, I will say that major urban centers like Kabul are the are the are the epicenters of wealth in Afghanistan. If you can consider anything about Afghanistan wealthy, right? They're what they're what produces any uh, um, yields. You know, unless they're going to straight up just go back to just selling fucking heroin and, and poppy and shit, you know, th- that's where all their money's coming from. 
Um, and it would be naive, I think, to think that that the Taliban are just going to ignore the urban centers. Uh, that's where the money is. That's where all the infrastructure comes from. You're right. A lot of these Taliban fighters are young, young kids, you know, and they got cell phones and stuff like that. They want modern shit too. You know, they want internet and they want all this stuff. So I think it's, it's, it's a little short-sighted to think that they're just going to ignore the, the major population centers. I think they're going to want to dominate the, the major population centers as they're going to want to control them to the best of their ability, because that's where they're going to get the most money. And that's also where they're going to get the most international notoriety. Cause remember they, they need to be accepted by the world community if they're going to succeed. I don't think they're going to ignore it. And, and the only way that they can have their cake and eat it too, is to just brutalize people. We, 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 I mean, North Vietnam could have been the same way. They could have just been like, yeah, fuck the, fuck Saigon. We're just going to dominate the rest of the land and just leave them alone. No, that's not what they did. They wanted communism everywhere. Same thing with the Taliban. They want an Islamic emirate everywhere. And they're not going to ignore the major population centers. Well, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how, uh, this, uh, this government acts and behaves or how long it behaves it's uh there's so many questions to be asked about what's going to happen right now and um i guess time will only tell as things fold out over the next year or so um i got i got some last last bits before we before we shut down for the day uh and that's um the the refugee crises um, because there are some parallels to Vietnam. In, in Vietnam, there was something like 140,000 Southerners who fell, uh, who fled the country uh, in '75. Um, most of them were, you know, people who worked with Americans, and you know, they permanently resettled in the United States. And you know, it, w- with with um, some luck, you know, maybe a lot of people from Afghanistan will have the same um, ability. But you know, that it didn't stop there. I mean, it. There was an international crisis in Vietnam where something like in 77, there was like 15,000 Vietnamese, they called them boat people, uh, who were just getting on these rickety ass boats and like trying to go to other Southeast Asian countries. Uh, a lot of them were turned away. Um, and and this quadrupled by the end of the following year to like 62,000 people that were f- literally fleeing the South. Um, and we already see today that thousands of Afghanis are, are trying to leave the country. Uh, it's going to be the same, if not worse, in Vietnam. And this could trigger a refugee crisis, which can result in regional instability and maybe even some more war. And I think what's what's interesting about this is all of the regional players, right? So uh, there is Pakistan, for obvious reasons. There's some some trepidation in Pakistan because their president literally was on this ABC um, uh, interview that I, that I watched not too long ago, and he was straight up saying like, hey, We've had a rough go of it for the last couple of years. Our economy kind of sucks right now. We cannot take more refugees. But this is going to happen whether he likes it or not. And, you know, a lot of people are probably going to go into areas that are that are Pashtun in, in Pakistan. There's, there's a big chunk of, of um, Western Pakistan that's, that's also Pashtun. There is some also hesitations about what if the Taliban decide that they want to annex that or what if they want to you know, somehow exercise some control over that. Uh, 
you know, what if they, you know, uh, start convincing Pashtuni people to take over Pakistan, you know, and, and kind of expand that way. You know, those are very real trepidations. I know Turkey is kind of the end point, the landing point for a lot of uh, Afghanis who are leaving um, uh, uh, Afghanistan. Now, that's not the first country they go to because Turkey and Pakistan uh, and Afghanistan don't border one another, but they go to the to Turkey vis-a-vis other countries, places like Uzbekistan and things like that. And Turkey's already having a fucking problem with refugees. We've, we've talked about this with the Syrian um, crisis season. They, they don't want any more. Like they, they don't need any more, but ultimately that's where a lot of people are saying that they're going and where a lot of people are already going. So there's that. Um, they're gonna, they'd be, you know, they'd have to somehow get involved. Uh, and then there's China. Uh, and this is a big one, you know, because the, you know, Xinjiang province, you know, Uyghur population, a lot of them are uh, Islamic, right? A lot, of, a lot of them are Muslim. Uh, and a lot of people are going to be going to, or at least thinking to go in that direction towards uh, Xinjiang uh, and and similar areas. Um, that that will that is inherently a problem for China because they're already <laughs> they're already uh, uh, I don't want to use the word genocide again, but they're already doing some fucked up things to, to you know to the Uyghurs there. Um, and China, you know needs Afghanistan to chill the fuck out if they want to do their Belt and Road Initiative, right? Uh, and there can't, we can't have a massive refugee crisis in, you know, in, in Central Asia, or at least China doesn't want this because that disrupts their plans, that disrupts their business. I think a lot of China's concerns right now are about the Uyghur, um, you know, the, the Uyghur militants that are there. There's a lot of Uyghur militants in Afghanistan, and I think that their policy is going to focus on that primarily. Um, they're going to say, hey, Taliban, um, we'll treat you normal, just like if you see a Uyghur militant, just kill him, and we'll be cool. I think that's what their policy is going to be like. Just do not foster the weaker militants, and uh, you know we'll be straight. And you know, as far as this mining stuff, you know, there's all this. You know, I, everyone's reporting on like, oh, there's trillions of dollars of of, of uh, mineral wealth underneath Afghanistan that China is going to get. You're like, oh no, um, dude. Everyone's known there's been this, like, they have a lot of, like, uh, you know, different minerals there. What do you think's going to happen? They're just going to come in with, like, a bunch of cranes and just start, to take like, staking it and stealing it? Like, China's going to invade Afghanistan or something like that and start stealing the mineral wealth? No, but it can turn it? into, like, a like an African country where, you know, the, the, the dictators there, you know, enrich themselves personally and sell off the... Um, the rights to mine there—that's that's a very real thing. China has experienced. China is going to kill them. China is going is in the process of killing themselves with their monetary policy, and that is, they can do that, and they can do issue these predatory predatory loans like they do to Africa, and they can you know build these projects, and um, they can they can fund these projects that um, they will obviously not get their money back on. 
and um, do this stupid shit and then say, hey, we're going to take that port or we're going to take that mining facility. Um, but then I don't think they even have the real means to say, hey, all right, like you didn't pay back my give, pay back my loan. I, I, need, I have control over that port. And uh, doing that to the, to the Taliban, they'll just be like, okay, fuck you, go to hell. Like they're not going to be able to to uh, to enforce that type of will that over there, and I don't think they're going to be engaging in that in that predatory system that they do. And I ultimately think that predatory loan system that they're using right now is going to really hurt them um, in the long run. I think China is um, is um, creating a lot of self inflicted wounds right now. Um, with their own monetary policy, I think they have um, fall fallen away from a lot of the good market um, transitions they made in the 1980s, and they're falling back into um, a lot of the bad practices that they were they were doing prior to uh, to um, you know when you know when they're having their reforms in their economy. But I think, yeah, if they want to have a presence in Afghanistan, go ahead. Like, I mean, like, can, can you it. at least acknowledge the fact that a refugee crisis would would? Cause oh yeah, there's going to be a refugee crisis. I can absolutely acknowledge that. There's going to be a refugee crisis, and um, I think America definitely has an obligation to take collaborators. I think I said that at the beginning of the episode mm-hmm. to take to take people that are going to get killed, frankly, because there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be killed if right. they don't leave. So the U.S. has absolutely has the obligation to take those people in and, and make sure they don't get killed, like translators, interpreters, and, and things like that. Without, it goes without saying. Um, but, yeah, there's going to be a refugee crisis. Um, there was a, refugee, a big refugee crisis in the early 90s, too. A lot of European countries, a lot of Afghans in, from, um, in European countries are from those, um, you know, from that era. Um, I think what's, so, what's yeah, unfortunate um, about today is that you know countries all over the world right now are kind of burnt out on refugee crises. Nobody's well, willing to take refugees anymore. There, so many major Western countries are, you know, are are turning people away left and right. I mean, we are probably the biggest culprit of this. Yeah, um, we're not. Um, it's a tough it's a it's a difficult situation because um you know there's no doubt issues man i this is a whole other topic i don't want to get too far into you know the refugee debate but um these refugee like i just think it goes all from where it started like there wouldn't be these refugee crises if there weren't these um, wars that were being created largely right. by Western powers. You're, you're you know, not like, wrong. You're not wrong. However, that's that's reductive, right? It doesn't matter what should have happened or what shouldn't have happened. What matters is what's happening right now. You're you're not wrong. Well, we shouldn't have we shouldn't have gone into Afghanistan in the first place, or at least we shouldn't have thought to like you know nation build there, but we did. That's already done. It's in the past. And now these are the consequences that we have to wrestle with. And there will be some regional instability. Again, to make very clear, doesn't 
mean that we should have stayed. It doesn't mean that we should go back in. I'm just putting forth the challenges that the world and specifically that region is going to have to deal with. And how what's important to think about this is how do the the players in that region react to those challenges? How do they how do they meet those challenges? And we can be overly optimistic about you know the the Taliban just you know kind of pl- doing a laissez-faire play and saying like ah you know maybe you know women have to wear burqas but for the most part everything will will go back to normal and maybe that maybe that's the best case scenario for that but as far as my interpretation of you know, the comparison between the fall of Saigon and our current fall of Kabul you know it seems like the Taliban are tracking much in the same way as the North Vietnamese did. And I don't believe right now, I have no reason to believe that the Taliban are going to do anything any differently. I see. I think, I think we're going to have to, for now, just agree to disagree. I think the circumstances are just a lot different and, you know, they're completely different societies and, you know, Islamic law and communism, and, th- and they're just they're different animals altogether. Um, but maybe we can kind of discuss this as things play out because you sure. know, we're dealing with limited information right now. For sure. Um, but we're going on almost two hours right now. I think it's uh, time to end today's episode, <laughs> today's session. Agreed. We're all out of time. I'm watching The Sopranos right now, and it's like, you know, watching the dynamics between Melfi and Tony. We're all out of time now. Um, all right. You want to end this? Yeah. Okay. Um, thanks again for listening to another episode of Bro History. It has been a pleasure doing this episode for you all. Um, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show going over to the top right you know where you where the rating review section is on apple ipad and rating and reviewing the podcast give it a five star um and then you can also join us on patreon get access to our slack um and uh, yeah um make sure you tune in to our episodes weekly we discuss history current politics international politics and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff that we find interesting Um, Anything else to add? No, man. Peace. All right. All right. See you guys. Okay. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.